Welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which is predicted to reach epidemic levels in our lifetime. We will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to increase our understanding of how superbugs are impacting our healthcare systems globally. They will also highlight actions that we can take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections. This series is co-created by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Marnie Peterson. Welcome, everyone, to our first episode of Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on antibiotic resistance, which is one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development today. I've spent the last 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher. In this episode, I will speak with a patient, an individual that suffered from an infection caused by a multidrug-resistant bacteria, how he survived that infection, and how that changed his life. We'll also speak with his treating physician and how they were able to manage and use antibiotics of last resort. Finally, we will speak to a researcher and how her laboratory has been working towards identifying new targets for drug discovery. Our first guest is David Ritchie. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So if you could just provide us a little bit of background of how did you become infected with a multi-drug resistant bacterial infection? In 2011, I was living in Calcutta, India, and I was working at an HIV orphanage uh, in the slums. So it was a super impoverished area of the city, and there was a train that passed right through the middle of the slums and so I was walking right next to those train those train tracks and uh, a train came by and ran me over and uh, they shortly amputated my leg without anesthetic shortly after that in a small clinic nearby and you know I was awake watching it and screaming and uh, that after that, I kind of came around and they transferred me to an actual hospital uh, in Calcutta. And they still hadn't mentioned anything about an infection because uh, at this point they, they probably didn't know. And it wasn't for uh, about three weeks when I returned to where I live in Seattle, Washington. And I went to Harborview Medical Center here in Seattle. and. They uh, tested my blood and it came back with at least five different types of bacteria that were all uh, resistant to antibiotics. So I'm not sure how I got infected with it. It could have been the initial train accident. It could have been the hospital afterwards. It could have been the brutal amputation. But either way, when I came back to the States, they confirmed that I had it. Were you treated with antibiotics when you were in India before you came to the United States, back to the United States? Not that I know of. And they didn't, uh, I don't think they discharged me with any 
paperwork to bring to Seattle either. So if if there was, there uh, wasn't any mention of it. I was in surgery a number of times in the preceding like three weeks before I came back to Seattle. I thought they might have just been like, you know, surgically cleaning up my amputation site a bit and maybe clearing out infection. I think they definitely had an idea because they didn't completely seal up the wound. They left it uh, open and they even had a drainage, like a drainage pump mm-hmm. sticking out of my uh, residual limb, my stump. It had like these tubes coming out and that's where they actually found most of the resistance was in this this drainage pump that was draining fluid from my uh, leg. So when you, when you um, arrived and were admitted to the hospital uh, in Seattle, at that time, was your wound infected? Were you having other issues? Uh, well, it, it was infected at that point, but it uh, didn't look like it uh, on the surface, at least. So they didn't know. There wasn't any other symptoms quite yet. It hadn't entered my bloodstream. Because if uh, one of these things had entered my bloodstream, you know, I, I probably would have died in just a, like a couple days. But uh, it was localized to the infection site. So it was localized somewhere in my leg. But it was real tricky. You know, uh, they couldn't just test my blood to see if I had it because that just came back negative. And then it was only when they really tested that drainage fluid and they're like, oh, no, it's definitely in there. And then when they surgically went back in and opened it up. Uh, my surgeon, Doug Smith, he said it. there looked like black necrotic tissue in certain areas on the inside. And it was, you know, very reminiscent of a pre-antibiotic or a post-antibiotic type situation where surgery kind of becomes your go-to method of treatment. Instead of, you know, antibiotics for an infection, you got to treat it surgically and cut out the infection because you don't even know it's there until you you physically mm-hmm. are looking at it. So just going back, and this was 2011, um, going back to the, being in the hospital, um, what were your thoughts? I mean, when, they, when the physicians came and spoke to you about the type of bacteria you were, your wound was infected with and that they were resistant to many of the antibiotics that they had available to them. Yeah, I mean, I was a little confused at first, but I, you know, I was in good spirits. I was alive. I survived a train accident, traveled the world and then came back. And so for me, it, uh, I wasn't all that discouraged at first because I didn't, you know, I also didn't understand what that meant to be heavily dosed with antibiotics. I thought like, what, some pills I got to pop, like some penicillin or something like that. That's, that's no big deal. But it turned out to be a lot more intense than that. Uh, so I, I welcomed the news at first. I thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, wow. I mean, but they did warn me. They said, you know, we don't really know how to treat you. We've looked at some forums online. We've talked to some people at the CDC. We've read some papers. But, you know, resistance is uh, we're still trying to deal with it. And it kind of recently is on the rise. And so... Uh, we're not really sure how to treat you. There's a 50% chance this might not work at all, but uh, we're going to do our best. And I was, you know, I was like, all right, that sounds good to me. I mean, that sounds really sketchy and uh, kind of like you're grasping at straws, but that's okay. I mean, you're doing the best you can. And so I was in a good mood and I think that really helped me get through this whole situation. Uh, But nonetheless, it was, uh, it was utterly 
just horrendous being on these antibiotics after the first week even uh it just felt like poison was being pumped into my blood you know and i didn't even know i had an infection if they didn't tell me if they didn't go in and see it tell us a little bit more about you know the 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 course of treatment and just how that affected your life during that time well the course of treatment in totality probably lasted about six months so uh in July, like start of July until, you know, end of the year, until Christmas, really, until uh, end of December, into January. And and then I was, I continued on Collison. I, the infection came back uh, two additional times. So when I came back from India in July and they treated it, most of that treatment was cutting out the infection and then putting me on broad spectrum antibiotics. They tried vancomycin at first, but then uh, there was a bad reaction to that kind of so, and it, it wasn't really working. So then the main the main antibiotic was colistin, in addition to a few other broad spectrum antibiotics. But you know whether or not that even did anything, my physicians were like, I, we don't know. It could be us cutting out the infection. It could be just nuking your body with these antibiotics. It's probably both. Uh, we don't know. And they would be real confident that they had got all the infection out. And then they would just put me on really high doses for a few weeks and uh, take me off for a couple weeks, then put me on for a few weeks. And then they would test it again. And uh, it came back negative. And then a couple months go by. And I, I still am not able to learn how to walk on a prosthetic yet because they have to keep the wound kind of surgically active. And so a few months go by and I started having enormous pain uh, in this part that they never sealed up all the way. They never sewed my wound shut all the way. And they were having to clean it. I, I had to clean it out regularly. Like, so every day we would have to go in and there was like a hole in my you know, thigh that was, cause it was, my leg was chopped off about mid thigh. And so there was like a little, hole that they kept open to clean with like a really long q-tip and you know antiseptics and stuff so to clean this out every day but when they would stick it inside of my uh stump it was hitting my femoral nerve and so when they did the amputation back and they even cleaned it up a little bit back here at harborview as well additionally uh they moved my femoral artery from where it had been uh well both my femoral artery and my femoral nerve had been damaged in the accident. And so they, my surgeon tied them somewhere else in my leg. He like moved them and it was hitting it. This Q-tip, every time they were cleaning, it was just hitting directly on my femoral nerve and it was causing just horrible pain. I, I was screaming, like, like scratching the walls as like, uh, it was being cleaned out from my family members back at home. And so we went back home or i mean uh, back to the hospital and said you know i'm in you know out of a scale of one to ten it's a ten if when they're cleaning it it goes from like nothing i'm totally fine and as soon as they hit my femoral nerve i just started screaming and so they are like well let's go back in and see what's going on and they went back in and they're like oh the infection's back we we wouldn't have known unless we just surgically went in looked at it and here it is and so they did the same thing again, cut more out, uh, and then put me on even stronger doses of colistin and hoped that it would go away. 
and it seemed to go away for a few months. And I learned to walk on my prosthetic. Life started to move on. I started to, you know, and at this point, I was very mentally exhausted. I was still in good spirits because I still had this like hope in the back of my mind of learning to walk. And I kind of been anticipating that up to this point, like, Oh, I can't wait till I can have a prosthetic. I it will look like I'm wearing Like I can fill out my pant legs, you know, and I was really looking forward to that. And then, uh, it came back again around just before Christmas, I got an abscess on my thigh. Like it looked like a tumor. And I was like, well, what in the world is this? So they went in, they tested me, and they're like, well, you're, you're negative, so we are going to have to do a biopsy. And it came back positive, of course. And so they, this time they put me on an additional drug that had been, I believe, fast-tracked for FDA approval in 2005 called tigacycline. And that's, uh, that one, though, was even more miserable than colistin. I actually couldn't handle it very well at all only for a week and then i asked them like i was just too miserable i was just like reeling in pain every single moment of the day was too hard i couldn't even watch tv in my hospital 24 7 i was miserable from the antibiotic and so they only had me on on tigacycline for a week and then they just st stuck with colistin and i think a couple other broad spectrum antibiotics and again you know surgically cut it out and hoping that it wouldn't come back and it it never did. So I, I was released from the hospital like Christmas Eve. And uh, that, and so right going into 2012, I continued on Collison, I think up until like for a couple months after that, but uh, it seemed to never come back. They always told me, you know, there's a 30% chance it could come back, but uh, each year, hopefully that will be less likely. And so, you know, now it's been seven, eight years. And so it's been a while. And now you, since it's healed and it's many, many years later, um, you're able to walk now and oh yeah, don't have those issues. Yeah, um, I'm able to walk freely. You know, you you recover from this. Um, you know, it's not only that you have an amputation, then you go through another six months of dealing with a, a multi-drug. Uh, resistant bacterial infection, and then all the toxicities to the antibiotics. Now you're, you've healed, you're on the other side. How did it change your life? Um, it's had some impact on your focus, uh, your career choices, the areas you focus on. Yeah, I, uh, well, before I wanted to study and I had been going to school for history and psychology. And after this, I just got really involved in science. I just fell in love with it. And so I went back to school at the University of Washington for my uh, degree in biology. And I did my undergraduate research in microbiology and antibiotic resistance. So all this exposure, learning in, in university about what antibiotic resistance looks like and then, you know, how to understand it on like an academic level really was just so fascinating to me. I wanted to continue studying that. So I have continued to do that. And uh, I graduated just this past summer. And since then, I uh, had the opportunity to become involved in a bit more uh, policy work. I had previously spoken with Congress in 2014. So uh, just as I was starting to go back to school to get into science, uh, and that also opened up my eyes. I did it with Pew Research uh, Foundation, and we 
we went to the Hill and we spoke with a number of senators and, and Congress members. And that also opened up my eyes to kind of the policy aspect of this. And so uh, since graduation, I, I had a the privilege of being asked to speak uh, in New York this past September uh, with the CDC uh, during the United Nations General Assembly. And that's how you've transitioned from your experience as a patient to now an advocate for antimicrobial resistance. Thank you so much, David, for sharing your story with us today. Next guest is Dr. John Lynch. Thanks for having me on today. My name is John Lynch. I'm an infectious diseases physician. I work at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and I'm on faculty as an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington. So Dr. Lynch, I just want to take you back to that day in 2011 when David Ritchie was admitted to the hospital for his infected wound. You were the physician at the time there and became his treating physician. Several uh, bacteria were isolated from his wound, and when the results came back, you were notified that there were several bacteria with multiple antibiotic resistance. One of the antibiotic resistance uh, genes that was identified was New Delhi metallobetalactamase 1, otherwise known as NDM1. When you got these results back, how significant were these findings to you, and what were your initial thoughts? I, I definitely remember that day in 2011 when a colleague of mine from the orthopedic surgery service called and said, oh, I think you've probably seen these uh, bacteria that we just isolated from this patient. Um, but just in case, can you just take a quick look? And I was in my office and opened up the medical record and brought up uh, David's uh, bacterial isolates, these basically these culture results from his wound, and saw a number of different bacteria listed and what are called susceptibilities. So basically looking at which drugs worked for each bug. Uh, and the way that's reported is, uh, is the bacteria susceptible or is it resistant for each of those drugs? And what was really remarkable was the long list of Rs or resistance uh, for all, almost all of the antibiotics for almost all of the bacteria that were isolated. So at that point, I realized we had a, a serious concern on my hands um, here in the hospital uh, and also for this patient, uh, because I was thinking both about this patient, what could this be? Uh, why is this uh, back, these bacteria so resistant? But I was also thinking about in a hospital like mine, where we have a lot of shared spaces, um, what could that mean for the patient in the bed next to his? Um, the, uh, David had been in the hospital for a few days, and so I... You know, on the phone, as I brought this these data up, I uh, called Dr. Smith back, the orthopedic surgeon, said, you know, can you go to his door right now? And as long as he is safe and sound and doesn't need urgent medical care, please don't let anyone in or out. Just, and I'll be there in five minutes. Um, and I was probably there in, in three. Um, and I was thinking as I was walking, uh, what was going on? Um, we, as a, as a person who's, in, who's working in the areas of infection prevention, antimicrobial stewardship, and drug resistance, I, uh, as I heard uh, Dr. Smith's story about uh, David and where he had been injured and what his story had brought him here, the thing that popped into my mind was NDM1 
which had been described initially in 2009. So really only about a year or so before um, and and would be something that could explain what I was seeing in those uh, drug resistant profiles. So let's just talk about MDM1. What made you think it was MDN1 and had you treated an infection prior? Why that popped up was was really two things. One was we had several gram-negative bacteria, this type of bacteria that's really susceptible to becoming drug resistant. Um, and we had and, and those bacteria that came out of David's wound were very resistant. So they had uh, resistance to uh, multiple classes of antibiotics. And we knew this was a signature of bacteria that also had NDM1. We have to, you know, in, in my world of infectious diseases, when these new drug resistant uh, genes are detected, they're, they're big news, they're really important. Um, and, uh, you know, infectious disease is a specialty that when we think about patients, we really think about the global ecology, um, you know, where they've been, who they've been around, what type of wound they had, uh, because we are all kind of part of the world and we pick up what's around us and we uh, share what's on us with those around us and our environments. And so when I thought about David being there in India, having this very difficult infection, um, having him been in healthcare in uh, in India as well, where they saved his life, um, and then looking at that uh, profile, it all added up really quickly uh, that NDM1 could definitely be uh, uh, high risk in this situation. And, you know, it could have been other things, but it, would, it was the thing that fit the best. Um, and what's really important is that uh, as we talk about NDM1, we can certainly go into this a little bit more in depth, but where you find NDM1, you find many other genes that convey resistance. So most of the bacteria that we see with NDM1 are resistant to multiple classes of antibiotics because those bacteria pick up other mechanisms for drug resistance. And so they tend to be resistant well beyond NDM1. NDM1 just makes it that much worse. Just talking a little bit about what was David's uh, status in the hospital's clinical status, and then based on that resistance profile that you uh, received from the laboratory, what treatment options did you have? Sure. So um, in terms of David's uh, clinical status, he was stable. He was on what's called an acute care floor, which is sort of, you know, where people get routine inpatient medical care. He wasn't in the ICU, which is great. I mean, he had a terrible injury, right? And that injury uh, was why he was moved to my hospital and, and was getting care. Um, the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Smith, who uh, was uh, taking care of him, is an expert in amputations and amputation-associated injuries, which is what David had, um, and, the, and the wounds that are associated with him. So when David was here, he had a large open wound, a lot of drains, um, a lot of you know high-level wound care, obviously a lot of the residual issues associated with a traumatic amputation. Um, for the other part uh, that was really concerning to me is um, my hospital is the county hospital. It takes care of trauma patients. It takes care of burn patients. And David was on a, a unit uh, where we have most, almost all the rooms are, are double rooms and almost all of the patients have large wounds like burns and, and traumatic wounds. And David was, you know, six feet away from another patient and no one knew that he had this infection. And so he wasn't in, in, in the precautions that we typically put. None of that was going on for David because that type of uh, bacteria is not picked up in our normal surveillance. So I was worried about David. I was worried about the patient next to him. 
So what we did immediately was, um, uh, you know, let his doctor know, Dr. Smith, let David know. Obviously, it was very stressful for him. Let his family know they were right there. They've been very involved with David's care. Um, and then uh, moved David. Uh, well, actually, I think we ended up moving the, the other patient out. And then uh, we did surveillance on the other patient because uh, many hospitals in the United States, including our own, have seen outbreaks of gram-negative bacteria like this that are very drug-resistant. So that was both those things were in my mind uh, as I was dealing with this. But unfortunately, uh, no evidence of any transmission in our hospital, which was tremendous. So let's talk about his therapy. What were your options? Right. So at this point, so, uh, you know, what's, what's really dangerous about NDM1 is that it conveys resistance to this really important class of antimicrobials. And, and you mentioned the carbapenems. These are antibiotics we typically reserve for very, very drug-resistant bacteria, bacteria that uh, we can't treat with many other medications. Um, and uh, and those also convey resistance to that whole class that carbapenems are part of, these beta-lactam drugs like penicillin and ceftriaxone that are sort of our workhorse antibiotics. What, But what's also really interesting about NDM one containing bacteria um, is that they tend to pick up drug resistance. If you pick up NDM1, it means you've been in an environment where there's lots of other genetic material around. And as I like to say, gram-negative bacteria are very promiscuous. They're very happy to pick up other tools of drug resistance, other genes, upregulate genes, and so forth. And uh, and that was true with the bacteria that we found uh, growing from David's infection is that they had lots of other mechanisms for drug resistance. So we became very limited. So when it came to treating David, what we basically had was uh, a, a bacteria that was uh, susceptible to almost nothing. I think that's actually a really important way to think about drug resistance is that it drives us to limited resources. It makes us, you know, where I, as an infectious doctor, typically have many choices of antibiotics. When we see this drug resistance, um, we actually are constrained dramatically in some cases, particularly the NDM1. And all of a sudden we come from a place of, you know, lots of choices, you know, good resources to a situation where we are constrained to very limited resources and very few choices. So, you know, you can think about it being from a, you know, a, a well-resourced hospital to a very poorly resourced hospital. And drug resistance turns us into a poorly resourced hospital. So even beyond the carbapenem drugs, the last sort of ditch drug is this drug called colistin, which is essentially kind of a detergent. Um, it, it kills bacteria by just destroying their uh, membranes um, and can be effective, but it's also very hard to, to dose, particularly in young people. It can be harmful for kidneys um, and cause other problems. And even that drug uh, wasn't, uh, these bacteria weren't highly susceptible to that drug. So our only choice uh, in treating David was uh, really combination therapy. One was treating him with a number of drugs that we hoped would work together and uh, in, in, in sort of function to, to uh, kill the bacteria. And I, I can certainly go through those drugs in a minute. And the other thing was surgery. And I think it was this sort of push-pull of more surgery, more drugs and the toxicity that was really the story for the next six months for David. And it was extremely hard. Were um, you able to keep the infection localized to the wound and, and it did not spread systemically? Yeah, so that that is a positive thing. So a couple things that are, are really important in addition to the story that I think are relevant. One is 
Um, these bacteria, we, we were able to keep the bacteria in that wound. There was, Davy never had any evidence of spread either through soft tissue, so the rest of the muscle and bone around uh, outside of that, that wound. And we also never saw it in his blood, which is great, right? We, he never required uh, intensive care at our hospital, so he never got intubated or needed a, like what's called a central line, so a line in his chest. David did require a pick line, which is a line that goes from you know the middle of your arm basically all the way to your heart, and he had a he had that in for months and months at a time. Um, but and those create risks for infections, especially when you have a bad infection with drug-resistant bacteria. You know we worry about intubation and these lines because they can become contaminated and leave the bloodstream infections or a pneumonia. But fortunately, none of that happened for David. So you were able to cure his infection. This is 2011. Um, now fast forward, are these types of infections still prevalent in your hospital? And, uh, you know, just wondering about has this, is this still an issue that you deal with? So we, you know, it was interesting in the next year or so, we saw a couple more of these uh, uh, patients with these bacteria, most actually all from uh, Asia. We had a person who was injured in Nepal who had uh, this at, after a traumatic accident being seen in a hospital there and brought here. And it actually uh, changed how we work in our hospital. When we see people coming from outside the United States from these hospitals, and to be clear, we United States hospitals have sent people to other countries, right? So the source of some of these outbreaks in other hospitals in other countries have come from the United States. So it's certainly not one direction. But our approach is for folks outside the United States, um, from outside hospitals, go, go into precautions. And we sort of test them out, make sure uh, there's anything going on. We, If they have any infections, we obviously do that because our concern is so great around that. And that's worked really well for us. We're fortunate in Washington state that our Department of Health uh, put in a surveillance program very early and requires reporting of all these types of bacteria. So we have a pretty good sense of what's going on in the state and it's definitely increased. Can you talk also now, you know, it's nine years later, do you have enough resources now to treat these patients? Do you have, do you feel you have additional antimicrobial options? There have been new uh, drugs developed, but they tend to be uh, sort of updates on classes of drugs we already have. So there's been some really thoughtful uh, combination therapies that have come out uh, from a class of drugs called cephalosporins, um, like ceftraxone, uh, but sort of souped up versions of those combined with other medications called beta-lactamase inhibitors. Um, and and those have been some of those are new, Co you know components are new, but they're not new classes. They're not brand new drugs, right? They're they're not something that I can sort of say, oh, these bacteria have never seen this before or anything like it. Um, what these are are you know they're similars that are being combined, and that's smart and good, and it gives us more tools. But it is not the groundbreaking like this is going to be the new class of drugs, right? Uh, and when I see these things, I'm still thinking about. Calistin. I'm still thinking about, you know, high dose carbapenems in combination therapy, um, in, in addition to some of these combination drugs. Any other strategies around antimicrobial stewardship pertaining to gram-negative, uh, resistant gram-negative infections? Yeah, so this is a really tricky one. So when we think, when I think about drug, uh, antimicrobial stewardship, it's, it's really two things. How do we slow the, uh, the, spread of drug resistance back or the emergence of new drug resistance right ndm1 comes from the world comes from nature 
And the reason it's there, like other mechanisms of drug resistance, is that we use lots of antibiotics in the world, right? And it's we're, we're kind of polluting our environment with uh, antibiotics. Some of those antibiotics are appropriate. Many of them are inappropriate. We give people antibiotics for reasons that they don't need antibiotics for all the time. We give animals antibiotics that we probably don't need to give to them as well. Um, we treat the environment, you know, agriculture with drugs that uh, are related to antibiotics. And so our environment is, is awash in these things. Um, and uh, in many ways, the horse is out of the barn uh, on many of that. And uh, and it's going to be very difficult to, to control. But the issue is when all that environment is sort of floating in antibiotics, those bad drug resistance bugs are going to emerge. And so uh, our goal is to try to slow that down so that we can get to the point where we have more classes of antibiotics, right? Because um, we're not going to stop it, unfortunately. Resistance will emerge. And even when we use, if we use antibiotics perfectly, drug resistance will emerge. The other important part of stewardship is how do we keep an antibiotic, uh, excuse me, a drug resistant bacteria moving from one person to another person, yeah. particularly in healthcare where we're really susceptible. And that's where sort of the overlap of infection control and stewardship is really, really critical in that partnership. Because we need to make sure that that person who's like David doesn't give a bacteria uh, to the person next to him or her. How do we keep someone who has that central line or that uh, tube down their throat not get pneumonia or bloodstream infection from a bacteria that's very drug resistant? Um, so how do we stop people from getting these uh, infections? Well, we got to be really, really good about keeping our hands clean and doing all the important steps around how we maintain central lines and urinary catheters and, and intratracheal tubes, because those are the highest risk people. Um, how we do surgeries all over the world, critically important in how we give people antibiotics before they get surgery, how we stop those, how we provide wound care and track it. Um, and that's really important work that's going on globally. So I would say that sort of balance of both things are, are really important. Thank you, Dr. Lynch, for sharing your perspective in the management of David's difficult infection and describing future steps we can take. Our next guest is Dr. Laura Piddock. Hi, I'm Laura Piddock. I'm Professor of Microbiology at the University of Birmingham in the UK. I'm also seconded from that role for 80% of my time to the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, GARD-P, based in Geneva, Switzerland. And in that role, I am their Director of Scientific Affairs. Laura, you've spent your entire career focused on understanding antimicrobial resistance and the threat posed by the lack of antibiotics to treat these resistant infections. Today, what do you see as the most important issues in treating these multidrug resistant bacteria? It's quite simply ensuring that effective drugs are available for all who need them. What this means is different and depends upon location. So for some, there is simply lack of access to effective drugs for susceptible infections. And for others where there's a high prevalence of multidrug resistant bacteria, this often means that there are very few options for treatment, even though antibiotics may be available. So there's several ways that this can be tackled. First, good infection prevention and control so that the number of infections are kept as low as possible, if not completely 
uh, banished. So this could mean in some countries effective sanitation, clean water, good public health systems such as closed sewers. And in others and many other countries would include preventing transfer of drug-resistant bacteria. So good infection control, such as we've seen with COVID-19. So washing hands is really, really important wherever you are. But of course, there are still going to be infections occurring. And even though we may get new vaccines for some bacterial infections, we're never going to be able to vaccinate or prevent all bacterial infections, whether they're drug susceptible or drug resistant. So we absolutely need new treatments. They need to be discovered and then they need to be developed for use in people. I think it's important, as you mentioned, that it's not just the development of the new antibiotics as resistance occurs, but it's also the prevention of the transmission. I want to move into first your role as the researcher. In the last five years, what has your university research team been focused on with respect to combating these gram-negative multidrug resistant infections? And, and maybe even just taking a step back is for the listeners to understand why you why this, you chose this as your career path as a, a researcher in this field? So going right back to my PhD, I was very lucky that I answered an advert in the magazine called New Scientist, which is where all jobs and PhDs were found. And I answered an advert to do a PhD while working in a hospital. And I worked with a, an inspirational uh, physician, uh, Richard Wise, who was an international lead for microbiology, particularly involved in preclinical and phase one drug development studies. And he had obtained funding for the PhD, which I did, which was to investigate the mode of action of beta-lactams against anaerobic gram-negative bacteria, in particular bacteroides species. So my work involved identifying the penicillin binding proteins in bacteroides and then the affinity of different beta-lactam drugs to the different proteins. And this gave some insight into how they worked and why some weren't effective. During my PhD, I was lucky enough to work alongside my clinical colleagues doing the um, preclinical and phase one development in partnership with pharmaceutical companies. And so I was involved in those studies as well. And for me, that grounded the PhD research I was doing. I felt there was a real world significance to it. Um, whilst it was basic research, I could see a reason for doing it. And for me, that's been my motivation. Everything has ultimately been for patient benefit. So even the basic science will ultimately lead for patient benefit. So I then went on in my postgraduate research to look at beta-lactamases and became very interested at that time in permeability of drugs into gram-negative bacteria. So where has this led me to? Well, my work in the last five years has very much been going full circle. So I've done a lot of basic research over the last few decades, but brought myself back into, well, how can this be applied? And the reason I kept sort of came full circle was because I was giving um, a public lecture and someone in the audience, a non-scientist, asked me what I was doing to tackle the issue of drug resistance. And my immediate answer was, well, my team are investigating how it occurs and how the bacteria change. And that person then turned around and said, yeah, but how is that going to help treat patients? 
And I suddenly went away with that in mind and really thought about it and realized quite a lot of what we were doing, we could use and develop tools to investigate new ways to either inhibit plasmid transfer and particularly plasmids that encode beta-lactamases or those that inhibit efflux. And efflux pumps are uh, molecular machines that uh, vacuum drugs out of the bacterial cells. Laura, you've spoken quite a bit about beta-lactamase inhibition. And I'd like to tie that together with NDM1-expressing bacteria which are metallobetalactamase 1 producers. Can you explain how they are similar to the beta-lactamases you currently study? Um, in my team, um, we've also looked at plasmids that degrade carbapenem antibiotics, of which NDM1 is, is a carbapenemase. And we... Um, focused on those because carbapenemase resistance is increasingly prevalent worldwide. But in, in essence, the carbapenem drugs are, are often the beta-lactam drug of choice for multidrug-resistant infections. And uh, some have called them one of the drugs of last choice. So, now we've got carbapenem resistance worldwide through these beta-lactamase enzymes. We're now having to use uh, horrible drugs such as colistin, which aren't very nice and have adverse reactions. So you've described that some of these antibiotic-resistant bacteria that have these beta-lactamases that are expressing the beta-lactamases are causing clinicians to have to use drugs of last resort that potentially have um, adverse reactions in their patients. In addition to that, as a solution, you're also looking towards development of new agents in your research laboratory pertaining to the inhibitors of these efflux pumps. So based on all this, where can you summarize like where you think the landscapes of antimicrobial is currently at, uh, those that are in development um, or being researched at this time? So I think it's important to say, first of all, that my own research in this area is what you would call early drug discovery. And if we view the pipeline as going from early discovery, where one would identify in the laboratory compounds or other uh, tools that could be developed into new treatments for patients. The pipeline is, we tend to divide it into sort of sections, you know, a bit like train carriages. So you've got the very early drug discovery of things that are exciting and could have potential. And then they get whittled down to things that are much uh, more druggable, in other words, that could become a treatment. Then we've got that section called the preclinical pipeline where you do the um, studies for how much can you get into a patient from a dose, and but you would do that in animals. You would do uh, efficacy studies in animals. And then ultimately you go into what we call clinical development um, phase one, you know, the first in man studies. And then you go into phase two and three and start using uh, these drugs in patients and see if they're safe and efficacious. That's the whole point about development is ultimately to end up with a, a safe and efficacious treatment. Along the way, there is attrition. 
And there's lots and lots of places that are called no-go, where you make a decision that you're not going to go forward with developing because maybe you can't get the right dose into a patient. Maybe you can't even get the right formulation. And for instance, it, you might be able to get a drug that's soluble and is made into an intravenous agent, but the patient excretes it in the urine really, really quickly. So that's not going to be very good. We might have something that's very toxic. Lots and lots of reasons they'll fail. So if I look at the pipeline as a whole, I am reasonably optimistic about the preclinical pipeline. There's lots of innovation there, lots of different types of things being investigated. So there are small molecules, which are conventional antibiotics as we understand them. So they will inhibit or kill bacteria, inhibit the growth or kill bacteria. And then there's interesting things like monoclonal antibodies that are specific for a particular bacterial species. And there's lots of other things. Some of these might be um, phage-based uh, studies. So phages are viruses that attack bacteria. Uh, microbiome modulating treatments, which are really targeting uh, Clostridium difficile that causes ulcerative colitis. There's lots of different things in the preclinical pipeline. And indeed, one of the reasons there's, there's lots of innovation is because there have been funding schemes provided over the last five years that have really stimulated this area. So instead of there being a lot of academic early discovery research that never went anywhere or in small companies because there was no way of funding the preclinical research, there's been funding put into um, essentially two big mechanisms, although there are others worldwide. There's CARBEX, which I think many people in the US are familiar with, but also that does fund work outside the US. And then there's the Repair Fund, funded by Novo. So that's allowed uh, funding for preclinical research. Going into clinical research, it has been much more challenging for people to fund the, their potential new drug treatments to do this clinical development. And uh, often it's been small companies because large pharma has pulled out of this area, except for a very, very few, less than a handful of big companies remain in this area. And so small companies have had to get, go to multiple sources of funding. Uh, it could be BARDA, but it could be venture capital. But often it was never enough. And even if they went all away and they had a drug registered for use in patients, the challenge of marketing and manufacturing that drug was such that some of those companies went bankrupt or liquidation. We very recently, only a few weeks ago, had the launch of the AMR fund, um, which is intended to support clinical development of the most promising new drugs. So this should really help. Where you are now spending the majority of your time is at the organization, the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, otherwise known as GARD-P. And you're in the role as Director of Scientific Affairs there. Yes. So I lead on um, and interact in several areas, but I lead on the GARD-P discovery and exploratory research. And I also lead on our outreach education and training activities. And the third area that I'm actively involved in is our advocacy and policy with a team of other people. And I provide scientific input to the 
uh, other programs as and when necessary. So for their listeners that have not heard of GARP before, can you describe the mission of that organization and why you've decided to spend the majority of your time at this not-for-profit organization? So the shorthand for the mission of GARP is that it is to make sure that effective antibiotics are available for all who need them. Uh, and we focus very much on uh, those areas that may not be addressed so easily by other actors, whether they be big or small companies. So the mission is quite simply effective drugs for all who need them. We've had a, a, a lot of funding into supporting the profit-making area of drug development, both preclinical and now with the AMR uh, fund. But it's very clear there's a role for not-for-profits, such as the model offered by Guard P, who are addressing areas that the for-profits are less likely to do. And in particular, this is infections such as sexually transmitted infections that are less likely to address, or developing drugs that are go all the way and are registered for use in adults, but never get developed further for children and babies. So we need to address funding this sector as well. So yes, it's a call for funding to guard P, of course it is, but it's a call for funding for all areas, but to include not-for-profits, not exclude them, because it needs all of these actors in the field to get these new drugs, these new treatments, whatever modality, to everybody who needs them. And that's throughout the world, not just in countries that can afford them. Thank you, Dr. Pittock, for your insights into new strategies for development of antibiotics and also accessibility to the current antimicrobials. At the end of our interview, I asked each of our guests the following question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? Individually, there are things we can do. I mean, one, you can be really careful about where you, what you put in your body, what you eat. Uh, are you eating meat that was raised on antibiotic? If we're careful about what we eat, uh, for me, I, I don't really eat much meat anymore. I eat some seafood, but that's about it. And uh, I'm just real careful about it. And so hand soap is a big thing that we haven't addressed. A lot of antimicrobial hand soaps are totally unnecessary. You know, normal bar soap is is the best method still. You know, hundreds of years later, it is still the best uh, you can do because it, it creates this physical action of rubbing the bacteria off with the lipid layer of the soap, and then the water washes the bacteria down the drain. What I would really uh, empower people to do is to, uh, if someone offers you antibiotic, just check in with that provider uh, because there's a lot of sociology involved with antibiotic prescribing. It's a lot of culture. Um, and I think that for you know some providers, some prescribers think that the patient wants an antibiotic. And I think that it's okay to say, no, I actually don't. You know, uh, can, I, can I do a wait? Can I hold on 
or hold off? Do I really need this antibiotic? And that helps the provider step back and maybe take a, a moment to think, well, maybe it is that is a good idea to hold off. And maybe this person in front of me isn't demanding an antibiotic, right? That parent of a child who's screaming, they're just tired uh, because that ear infection has kept them up all night, but they're not actually asking for antibiotic. They're just asking for some help um, and some advice on how to get this child to sleep and be okay. So I think all of us who know about antibiotics, whatever walk of life we're in, should make sure that all our family and friends are aware that these drugs are incredibly important. They underpin all areas of modern medicine. And that's what we need everybody to tell everyone. Firstly, these drugs are hugely, hugely important to all areas of medicine. And secondly, we've got to use them very wisely. You've been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the impact of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.